morning and welcome in this uh, Christmas season as it uh, is coming very quickly, it seems like, anyway. But I'm right on schedule with my Christmas shopping. I still have another, what, seven days to Christmas shop. So I'm right on task here. Uh, you know, uh, in our politically correct age, uh, nobody wants to be offended, and so many schools have dropped any religious uh, recognition at Christmas altogether, and uh, they've started singing about the weather. Uh, one of my favorite humorists is Dave Barry. He's a columnist. He lives in Miami, and he writes this about his children's uh, Christmas programs, if you will. He says, at my son's school, now they hold the winter program in February and, singing, and sing increasingly non-memorable songs such as Winter Wonderland, Frosty the Snowman, and he goes on to say, and this is a real song, Susie Snowflake. He said, all of this is pretty funny because we live in Miami. And uh, he makes this observation, Dave Barry says, uh, a visitor from another planet would assume that these children belong to the Church of Meteorology. And uh, so that's Dave Barry's take on our current climate uh, with the Christmas season. Uh, you know, there is something about receiving presents. I usually call Christmas a time of gift exchanges uh, because a real gift is without any strings, isn't it? Uh, but I was thinking about receiving presents, and uh, I consider, was considering how challenging it is to receive some presents from some people. Uh, some gifts, by their very nature, cause you to swallow your pride. I don't know if you've ever received any gifts like this, but imagine, if you will, that you open a present on Christmas morning, and it's from a friend, and it's a dieting book, and it's entitled, How to Lose 50 Pounds Quickly. I would say, my friend, you know, he's gone. That's 50 pounds out of my life right there. But, or you open another package, and here's another book, because they know you love books, and the title of this book is Overcoming Selfishness. And... Uh, and if you can bring yourself to graciously say thank you for these gifts, you are in some sense admitting, aren't you, that yes, I am overweight and I'm also obnoxious. And that's why my friends bought me these books. Uh, you know, sometimes, in other words, some gifts are hard to receive because to do so makes you swallow your pride. It makes you swallow the thing that maybe you take pride in in yourself. Uh, my family, Don and I, experienced this when we were at Dallas Seminary in our second year. Uh, we were uh, proverbially as poor as church mice. In fact, the second semester, I was going to drop out uh, because we didn't have the tuition money. But that Christmas, uh, unbeknownst to us, a whole bunch of Christmas packages arrived, and they were addressed to our children. Uh, with our children's name on them and a couple for Don and I. And uh, come to find out, some of the faculty got together and students who were struggling financially, they would buy them Christmas presents. And honestly, if we had not received those, there we wouldn't have had any presents for our children that Christmas in our second year of seminary. And it really caused me to swallow my pride because up until that point, I was always very sure of providing for myself. And it was a source of pride in my life. And so it was a humility lesson, essentially. It really was a humility lesson, and one I've learned and uh, tried to imagine in my own life again and again and remember that. Uh, you know, there has never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths of the gift 
of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that requires us to not depend upon ourselves, doesn't it? Christmas means that we are so lost, we are so unable to save ourselves, that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save us. We celebrate this babe in the manger, but remember why the babe came. He came to offer salvation, to die in your place and my place on the cross of Calvary and to provide salvation for us. That means that you are not somebody who can pull yourself up and live a good and moral life. It's only the Lord Jesus Christ. Any righteousness a Christian has is because it's imputed from Jesus Christ himself to our account. He is the one who has provided our salvation. As we come to Ephesians here, and as more I study Ephesians, I thought, what a great book for Christmas as we have come uh, to chapter 2, and we've looked at the first half of chapter 2, and we'll look at three verses out of the middle of chapter 2 as we come along. But one of the standards is the fact in chapter 2, it's about alienation. Uh, And if you've ever been alienated from other people and from friends, you may understand this word alienation. And we need to remember what we once were. In verse 11, it says, therefore, and other versions have a, a similar word, but therefore. In other words, we have to look at the context. Remember the first half of chapter 2, he talks about we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And he goes on to list that we were totally helpless. But in verse 4, it says, but God being rich in mercy. And he gives us the good news. There's the bad news, good news element here. But he says, therefore, in light of the fact that salvation is by grace through faith, it is the free gift of God through Jesus Christ. He says, remember that you formerly, you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. The Apostle Paul now is getting very particular about this thing called the church. Remember when he wrote this at about 62, the church was a very new entity in the world. The church began in Acts chapter 2. It may have been some 20 years old or a little bit older by this point, but the church had just started, and these were new churches in Asia Minor. Ephesus, of course, is in what we would call Turkey now on the coast, and it We need to remember what we once were. And verse 11 tells us we were alienated socially. We were alienated socially. And we're commanded here to remember. The word remember is an imperative verb, which means it is a command to us. And we were alienated because we were Gentiles. He's getting specifically about this Jewish-Gentile divide. And perhaps we don't understand that in our day and age like these first century Christians did, but there was a gigantic divide, a wall dividing. In fact, in verse 14, tells us that Christ himself is our peace who made both groups, he's referring to Jews and Gentile believers, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. William Barclay, who is a classic commentator on the Bible from the 19th century, writes, These words, he said, the Jew had immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles said the Jews were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he has made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in in her hour of sorest need, for it would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. By the way, if you're not Jewish by birth, you are a Gentile, no matter what ethnicity you are. If you're not Jewish, you are a Gentile. That's a term that applies to everybody except Jews. Barclay goes on to say, until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. 
The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral for that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death, the equivalent of death. Uh, John R.W. Stott, uh, who is now in heaven, but a great uh, pastor and theologian and commentator on the Word of God, writes about this separation and the very picture that it gives us. It comes actually from Jerusalem, comes from the Temple Mount and Herod the Great's great temple, which was in existence at this time when the Apostle Paul was writing about it. And it was finally destroyed by Titus and the 12th Roman Legion in 70 AD, but it was a visible picture of the separation between Jewish people and all other people, between Jew and Gentile. He says, in that temple, in the temple building, it was constructed on an elevated platform, and uh, there was the uh, court for the priest, there was the inner court of the priest, and east of that was the court of Israel. And, first of the, and further east of the court of Israel was the court for the women. So these three courts for the priests, for the lay Jewish people, and the lay Jewish women, they all had a court there respectively, and it was on the same elevation as the temple where the Holy of Holies was, where the great high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement. And from this level, one descended five steps to a walled platform, and then on the other side of the wall, 14 more steps down to another outer court, which was called the Court of the Gentiles. And between the Court of the Gentiles and the rest of the Temple Mount, looking up to that level, was a wall, a wall probably about eight feet tall, and it uh, cut off the Gentiles, anybody who came in from that. But there were warning signs on that wall, which basically said trespassers will be executed. Trespassers will be executed. A Jewish historian, Josephus, you may have heard about him, he lived during this time, describes the barricade in his books, his book Antiquities and the War of the Jews. He said there was a partition of stone all around whose height was about eight feet. This construction was very elegant. Upon it stood pillars at equal distance from one another, declaring the law of purity, some in Greek and some in Roman letters, that no foreigner should go within that sanctuary. In fact, archaeologists have found a couple of these notices, uh, one in 1871 and one in 1935, where they found these plaques. And actually, it's a reminder from Acts 21, where the Apostle Paul was accused of bringing a man named Trophimus, who was a Gentile from Ephesus, into the Temple Mount and was almost uh, slaughtered because of that. And that's the historical and religious background. That's why later the Apostle Paul is talking about how we have come together as Jewish believers and Gentile believers into this one new entity called the church that was founded in Acts chapter 2. And so we were alienated socially in this. And if you've ever experienced being alienated socially, you know that you feel less than human, if you will. Marianne Bird, who is an author, she writes in her book, The Whisper Test, she writes these words, I grew up knowing I was different, and I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate, and when I started school, my classmates made it very clear how I looked to others. A little girl with a misshapen lip, a crooked nose, a lopsided tooth, and garbled speech. When my schoolmates asked how, what happened to your lip, I'd tell them I'd fallen and cut it on a piece of glass because somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born different. 
I was convinced that no one outside of my family could ever love me. There was, however, she goes on to write, a teacher in the second grade that we all adored. Her name was Mrs. Leonard, and she was short, round, happy, sparkling lady. Annually, we had a hearing test at school, and Mrs. Leonard gave the test to everybody in the class. And finally, it was my turn. I knew from past years that we would stand against the door and cover one ear, and the teacher would sit at her desk and then would whisper something, and we would have to repeat it back, things like, the sky is blue, or do you have new shoes? And I waited there for those words that God must have put into her mouth, those seven words that changed my life, she writes. Mrs. Leonard said in her whisper, I wish you were my little girl. And, you know, God says that to every person who is deformed by sin. He gives us the free gift of salvation and makes us his child I wish you were my son or wish you were my daughter, but on God's half, he's not wishing it. He has provided it through the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation by grace through faith. You no longer have to be alienated socially. And then in verse 12, we were alienated spiritually. We were alienated spiritually. In verse 12, the remember, in other words, this is remember, remember, remember verse 11, then remember verse 12. He's reminding believers in the Lord Jesus Christ of where we came from. Now, for those of us who came to know Christ later in our lives, uh, at a more adult age, like I did at age 28, I have a lot to remember. Uh, but may perhaps some of you were saved when you were four or five years old, and all you remember is by accepting Christ as your Savior, it prevented you from biting your sister anymore. You know, but that's great. But what I want to challenge you with, if you were uh, came to know Jesus as Savior as a child is to remember what the potential could have been and that you were rescued from that potential. But yet the Bible declares we are all sinners, that we've all missed the mark, and so we were alienated spiritually. And here he's talking about this alienation in verse 12. We're to remember this time and what we were, it talks about, what we once were. And he gives us a five-fold description of our disabilities. We were disabled. First of all, we were Christless. We were Christless. Look at verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Christ here is specific and purposeful. In fact, in some translations, they put Messiah because that's what Christ means, the one who was promised to come rescue Israel for eternal life and by extent rescue the human race. We were Christless. We were separated from Christ. Secondly, the second description is we were stateless. We were stateless. Look again at verse 12. You were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. That word commonwealth is a rare word. It's only used twice in the New Testament. The other refers to citizenship in the nation of Israel. But it's the idea that we are excluded. We don't belong anywhere. Gentiles, even though we have a nation, we have an ethnicity, we don't belong anywhere in the God's people. Remember, Israel is God's chosen nation. And so, uh, let's see, let me, I've got a little note here about that. But about this whole issue of citizenship, when you think of Israel, God did not choose Israel to the exclusion of all other nations. Oftentimes we view it that way, don't we? But God chose them in order to reach all other nations. When you go to the Old Testament, after Israel was established in uh, Genesis chapter 12, we see that 
They were to be a light shining on a hill to the pagan nations around them. Uh, All along, God intended to use Israel as evangelist, instrumental in bringing the other nations of people unto God, unto belief. In fact, if you read Isaiah, Isaiah is known as the missionary prophet because he talks about the other nations. In Psalm 67, King David invoked the blessings of God upon Israel. He said in verse 1, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. And then he states the reason for that request in verse 2, that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. David had a clear understanding of the purpose of Israel being God's chosen people. David encouraged the people and creation to praise God. In the final verse, he returned to the original theme, God will bless us and all the ends of the earth will fear him. Verse 7, this idea of citizenship that we were outside of God's choice and we didn't we were stateless we didn't have citizenship Israel was divinely chosen distinctively called but yet it resulted in a displayed conceit this Gentile Jewish divide is what it was there was selfishness self-glorification and pride it's with us to this day on both sides of the Gentile Jewish divide all you have to do is read uh, news from the Middle East and we see it time and time again And yet the church is this new entity. We are to walk in unity. We are to love the spirit. We are salt and light in the world. We are the lifeboat in the midst of a difficult raging sea of society. So we were stateless. Thirdly, we were friendless. We were friendless. Look again at verse 12. We are excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Strangers to the covenants of promise. What's that all about? Remember, Uh, I talk about covenants when we do the Lord's uh, Supper here, when we do communion. And a covenant is an agreement. It's a legal agreement. And there are conditional covenants uh, which require both parties to keep the covenant. And then there are unconditional covenants which are kept by God alone. And we see that in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 15. Uh, It's called the national existence. And in the Abrahamic covenant, when God promised Abraham, he promised him three things, land, seed, and blessing. The land of Israel, the seed of of prosperity, of there be multitudes of people coming from him, and then to be a blessing, there would be the rescuer, the Messiah, the Christ to come. And then we see three other covenants in the Old Testament, what's called the Palestinian covenant, covenant in Deuteronomy 28. It has to do with the land which, by the way, Israel is not occupied yet. That is yet future. And then the Davidic covenant, which promises a king, a throne, and a kingdom, Second Samuel 7, Psalm 89, and elsewhere. And finally, the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, of the spiritual blessing that there will be a Savior to rescue us from our hopeless condition. And that brings us to the fourth uh, description of our disability. We are hopeless. We have no hope in verse 12. There is no hope. Boy, when you lose hope, it seems like everything is gone. In fact, hope is confidence based on credible promises from someone who can perform them. It's not wishful thinking. The Bible is not about wishful thinking, but it is about the hope we have in Jesus Christ because God does not lie. He has given us his truth, and he will carry it out. And then finally and fifthly, we were godless without God in the world. This is a terrible description of who we used to be, is this fivefold deprivation. We were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. He wants us to remember that. 
And that will tamp down the pride that we in ourselves have done anything that we have done. I remember in, when we traveled to Indonesia in 1998, and then again I went in, uh, or in 1995, then again I went in 1998, uh, in the city of Pontianak, which is in West Kalimantan, which is on the island of Borneo, but Pontianak is multi-million in population right on the equator, and we'd be driving somewhere, and there'd be beggars on almost every corner. And most of the beggars were children, and many of them were blinded. They didn't have eyes in their head. They were blinded. And I was told by the missionaries that many people will blind babies because they, you're going to put them to work as beggars uh, in the future. And uh, so I was thinking about that, and then I read a, an article uh, by Sky Jethani, who took a trip to India with his father, they were walking on the streets of New Delhi, he relates. A little boy approached them. He was skinny as a rail and naked, but for a tattered blue shorts. His legs were stiff and contorted, like a wire hanger twisted upon itself. Because of his condition, the little boy could only waddle along on his callous knees. He made his way towards Sky and his father and cried out, One rupee, please, one rupee. Sky described what happened when his father eventually responded to the boy's persistent begging. What do you want? My father asked him. One rupee, sir, said the boy, motioning his hand to his mouth and bowing his head in deference, and my father just laughed at him. How, what about if I give you five rupees, he said, and the boy's submissive countenance suddenly became defiant. He retracted his hand and he sneered at us. He thought my father was joking, having a laugh at his expense. After all, no one would willingly give up five rupees, and the boy started shuffling away, mumbling curses under his breath. Sky Jethsani said, my father reached into his pocket. Hearing the coins jingle, the boy stopped, looked back over his shoulder, and my father was holding out a five-rupee coin uh, out to him. And he approached the stunned boy and placed the coin into his hand. The boy didn't move or say a word. He just stared at his hand, and we passed on by him and proceeded to cross the street. A moment later, the shouting resumed, except this time the boy was yelling, thank you, thank you, sir, bless you. He raced after us again, but not for more money, but just to touch my father's feet. This, I imagine, is how God sees us. How God sees us as that miserable, beggarly creature, desperate for help. But rather than asking for what we truly need, rather than desiring what he is able and willing to give, we settle for lesser things. That's why it's so good to hear these testimonies on Sunday morning to recognize that you as believers, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a story and you have not settled for lesser things. You know, it's kind of like uh, being diagnosed with an extremely contagious disease. I read about one man who had a very rare and extremely contagious disease, and the medical team told their patient, they said, we are going to put you in an isolation unit and where you'll be on a strict diet of pancakes and pizza. And the guy with the disease said, well, pancakes and pizza heal me? No, replied the doctor, but that's the only thing we can slide under the door. So <laughs> we don't recognize, we're not fully cognizant of how contagious we were and how lost, lost we were until Scripture opens it up for us, just like it did at the first part of chapter 2. And now in chapter 11, remember who we formerly were. There are some things that Scripture tells us to forget, like the injuries caused to us that others do. But there is one thing in particular which we are commanded to remember and never forget. 
That is what we were before God's love reached down and found us. For only if we remember our former alienation shall we be able to remember the greatness of his grace and forgive and the forgiveness he gave us in transforming us. You may look the same in the mirror, but as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are no longer who you used to be. Why do I say that? Because of verse 13, which will begin the rest of the chapter, which we'll cover in the weeks ahead. But we need to remember in verse 13 what Christ has done for us. He has reconciled us socially. Look at verse 13. But now, but now, two little words, just echoing verse 4 of chapter 2, but God. Here it is. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The identification of reconciliation. He doesn't use that word here, but he has reconciled us, first of all, to himself. Through Jesus Christ, we have been made whole, made right, declared righteous, and we have been reconciled to one another in the sense that the Jewish-Gentile divide is being torn down. We who are far off have been brought near. We are together at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. We are no longer divided. He has reconciled us socially. That's why I find it so strange that we divide from one another in churches and go to other churches. And do we think we're going to avoid each other in heaven? Really? Really? Come on. The New Testament tells us that we are reconciled together. And he has reconciled us spiritually. The instrumentality of this reconciliation has been in Christ Jesus. What a technical, fantastic term. We are so identified with Christ Jesus, we are called in Christ Jesus many, many times by the blood of Christ, by the blood of Christ. I read an article about a 67-year-old man uh, whose name was Bill. He had donated in his life over 100 pints of blood over the years, and many people probably benefited from that man's generosity and kindness, and you wonder how those good deeds would go over in heaven, actually. When he was asked about that, he said, when the final whistle blows and St. Peter asks, what did you do? I'll just say, well, I gave 100 pints of blood and Bill said it with a laugh. That ought to get me in. And uh, he was probably, hope he was joking anyway about that. But if he were serious, he, if he truly believes that good deeds will give him a ticket to heaven, then he has perfectly articulated a gospel of works, which is no gospel at all. If Bill is counting on giving 100 pints of blood to get him to heaven, he's trusting in the wrong blood. Only the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who died for us. He is the one who saved us. A number of years ago, uh, Tom Hanks' movie Saving Private Ryan came out about a World War II episode about Army Rangers who landed on D-Day on Normandy. And uh, they took Omaha Beach and continued, and they were given a special mi mission to find Private Ryan. And so they traveled through France, and uh, after skirmish after skirmish and losing a few of their own, they found Private Ryan, and they told him, we're here to save you. We're going to be here to save you. But he didn't want to leave his comrades because there was a battle coming. And uh, Tom Allen, who is a former Army Ranger, tells this story. He said, uh, it was a, just a fantastic movie right up until the end. And at the end, after the big battle, Tom Hanks' character is, is dying. And uh, he led this expedition to save Private Ryan. And Private Ryan comes over to him, and Tom Hanks whispers something to him. And uh, it says that Tom Hanks, in his character, told Private Ryan, 
earn this. And Tom Allen, infuriated by that, because as a former ranger, he said that no ranger would ever tell another one to earn this. Because the ranger motto for the last 200 years has not been earn this. The ranger motto for the last 200 years has been sua sponte, which is Latin, which means I chose this. I chose this. I volunteered for this. So in that movie, when Private Ryan bends down, if Tom Hanks was really a ranger, he wouldn't have said, uh, earn this. He would have said, sua sponte, I chose this. This is free. You don't pay anything for this. I gave my life for you. That's my job. And when you look at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we think of this babe in the manger at Christmas time, you don't hear him say, earn this. You never hear him say that. He says, I've given everything for you. He says, you don't need to gut it out for me. What he says is sua sponte. I volunteered for this. You don't pay anything for this. I chose you. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one. And today, if you find yourself, you know, you, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, if you've never believed in him for eternal life, you are still in verses 11 and 12. You are still lost, lost. You are Christless. You are stateless, friendless, hopeless, godless. And the gospel is basically John 3.16. For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son for you. That if you believe in him, you will not perish but have everlasting life. When I read scripture, I look for consequence and condition for the consequence. The consequence in that verse is everlasting life or eternal life. What is the consequence to receive everlasting life? God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son if you believe in him. What a wonderful truth. That means fully persuaded that Jesus Christ meant what he said when he offered you everlasting life. And so this morning, you don't need to walk an aisle. You don't need to do anything. You just need to, where you're at, if you don't believe in Jesus as your savior, you can believe in him right now and be fully persuaded that everlasting life is yours. You can have the assurance that if you died this afternoon, you would be with him in heaven. What a wonderful truth. We grieve because we lose people. They die. And yet if they're believers in Jesus Christ, we know we're going to see him again. There is a future and a hope because Jesus Christ is righteous and holy, and he will not leave us forsaken. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1 tells us that. And so this morning, if you don't know Christ as Savior, you can do it right where you're at. Believe in him and then tell somebody. Just like Dean, like uh, Ron Anderson had Dean do. Tell somebody. Tell them about it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your, this day and thank you for the wonderful truth of John three sixteen. Thank you.